This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hello. Good morning. Been a while. Yeah. Hello. My name is Ernie, and I am a logaholic. You're a work a a logaholic. Logaholic. A logoholic. Someone who is addicted to logos, to words and logic, as a way to cover Uh, up my shame and lack of relationships. Hi, Ernie. I I agree with logic, logic, but uh, okay. Yes. So this was a phrase that came up in my mind when I was talking with a a friend of mine who we've been having some conflict, and miraculously we got to a point of vulnerability, and he explained that he grew up in a fairly abusive environment. Mm-hmm. due to some mental illness in the family. And in order to feel safe, whenever he would get caught in like doing something wrong, he would yeah. use logic and his quick wits to talk his way out of it. Mm-hmm. And that became his go-to reaction whenever something uncomfortable or threatening happened. And he's really smart and he's really good at it. And mm-hmm. that was the thing that was triggering me is that there was something that, like, I thought he had agreed that he would do, uh, right. and he failed to do it. And when I confronted him, he uh, basically started playing mind games with me. Mm-hmm. And and then I realized, and so um, it was actually when I said, I can't handle this, I just need to leave, that triggered his fear of abandonment, and he actually, like, paused and de-escalated and then finally confessed what had actually been that he has this dynamic and now I have a word for it and now I see like ah yes I see how I do this same thing and this mirrors some of the conflicts that you and I have had and I was was going to ask if if you were talking about me or some other friend yeah yes Yes, well yeah he, he literally said to me like, when I get in trouble, I will talk my way out of it because that is the way uh-huh. that I learned to survive. Right. And so that was a more uh, – and definitely this person I uh, interact with in other contexts, in many contexts. And so it's um, – uh, and also it's a person who has some authority over me in those contexts, mm-hmm. so it is even more fraught. Uh, but that was useful in that it was a much more – and he had, in some ways, a more uh, – uh, actually, the thing that was interesting is that he had similar uh, – so his mother had uh, – his dynamics with his mother are sort of a more extreme version of my dynamics with my mother, so I could relate to that sense of I don't feel secure around emotion. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, around attachment – and that hiding behind words is a very comforting thing. Right. right. Um, but seeing the fruit in his life, I can see, oh, it's also a really toxic thing. And also yeah. this framing like an addiction uh, was something I don't think even you and I have discussed necessarily, but that really uh, grabbed my attention. Mm-hmm. Have you ever studied addiction? 
thought in those terms? Well, I thought of various ways that I have uh, addictive tendencies, and I'm aware of the 12-step approach. And, uh, uh, I, you know, there are various levels of study, so I have some familiarity, but uh, I haven't studied it in depth, I would say. Have yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting framing, right? Because one of the things about an addiction is that it is a sort of deeply rooted reflex. Right. Um, and it's tied so to use that sense of, sorry? Oh, they, and you feel powerless against it. You feel like you have no option but to give in. Right. And, and certain things like, you know, alcohol or whatever are socially stigmatized. And certain right. other things like workaholism, um, you know, and in certain contexts, even rageaholism is lionized. Right. And so, um, but uh, one of the great phrases I heard, opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Mm-hmm. This was a study, they say, you know, if you put a, uh, a rat in a you know, room with normal food and uh, high sugar pellets, they will just keep hitting the lever for high sugar pellets. Um, say that again. But People. If, you, if, say that again. if you put a rat, if you, yeah, sorry. Rat. If you put a, a rat, rat in, in a cage, yeah. I forget, it was some drug or sugar pellets and like normal food. Right. They will just end up hitting the lever for more and more pellets, the sugar pellets. But that's an unnatural environment. If you put them in a cage with other rats because they are social characters, then they will not uh, keep hitting. They will just eat when they're hungry and then stop. The addiction is a way that we cope with our lack of connection. Ah, okay. So that was a fascinating idea. And so the fact that I discovered at least sort of accidentally one um, escape route that uh, uh, that you know, snapped the uh, addictive response and triggered a vulnerable response was quite profound. But this idea that uh, the other thing about addiction is that there is a whole literature and community and tradition devoted to this. And mm-hmm. um, step one, if I understand it, is you know just literally saying I am an addict and I cannot save myself. Right. And this um, is one of these things that echoes the sinner's prayer. Uh-huh. Right? And yep. yet, our concept of salvation and our concept of addiction uh, have historically been very uh, disjoint. I mean, a lot of people do use 12-step recoveries to come to God and come to Jesus. Right. Uh, you know, and so there is that. But the flip is not true. Right? We don't treat becoming a Christian or getting saved 
as an ongoing communal process of being liberated from deeply besetting sins. Uh And maybe we should. Yeah. That was all the preface I had. Okay. Well, one one interesting point is that uh, Bill W., who started uh, AA, um, thought he had overcome his addiction and then found himself back in a circumstance where he felt badly tempted and had the uh, prompting, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, to go and find somebody else also struggling with the temptation to alcohol and try and help them as a way to help mm-hmm. himself. And yes. that, that goes back to that communal thing. I have a friend who's struggling with addiction in another area and uh, and been encouraging him along the same lines to find somebody else that he can try and help in, the, in that area of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a book a friend and I are reading called uh, The Intentional Christian Community Handbook, um, which starts off noting that uh, we in the West have missed the communal aspect of the gospel and are trying to live out uh, what was designed for community as individuals. Still there? Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm yes, I'm still listening. Yeah. Oh, that's about all I've. I mean, so what do you? So what do you think about that? Do you think it is true that we need to be more communal in our exercise and experience of Christianity? Yeah, I say definitely that. Uh, um, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean living together, but uh, much more. I think God's intention is much more overlap, shared life, um, uh, seeking him together and um, walking with him together, not just as something each of us try and do privately. So is that changing your way that you think about and practice encountering God? Um well, what uh, uh, there's a another stream that's influencing me more at the moment, but um, I uh, I would say that uh, yeah, I, I think that the way that I encounter and experience God is more relationally engaged with conversations like this than. Uh, um, uh, spectator based of you know listening to messages and and um, participating in anonymous groups where we don't know each other right that's not the question I asked but well I'm not sure what it would what you're thinking of when you talk about uh, being more communal uh, where Jackie and I are pursuing or exploring how we might uh, re-enter the kind of community we lived in for 
uh, for me, it was uh, 24 years in Pasadena at a, a mission complex, a mission strategy complex. So we're looking, right, so we're looking, looking, we're drawn toward more community. Right. So one of the things I remember, uh, so when I was back in Illinois for my nephew's wedding a year and a half ago or something, was that you felt like you've had this problem with uh, people pleasing or codependency or whatever, avoiding conflict. And therefore, you were really focused on this idea of, I need to spend time alone with God. I need to hear God. I need to obey a spirit. I need to um, focus on myself. And we discussed the idea that, like, huh, being in a community where you're under authority, where you're actually accountable to hearing and and, uh, acting on things that other people say and think rather than just what I say and think. You mentioned that as an intriguing idea, but not necessarily something you were ready for at that point in time. Um, uh, well, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm drawn to the mutual submission idea. Um, and I think Jackie and I are making progress in that direction uh, and working out what that means for us. Um, the I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm not. I don't feel drawn to look for an authority to direct me, uh, if that's what you're suggesting. Uh, and, and the idea of being under an authority, a leader. Do you mean unauthority or under authority? What What do you What do you What does this mean to you that you're talking about? How How does this work out in your life spiritually? So yeah. So the issue is um, primarily about being submitted to a community. And so I mentioned that I have a uh, a working relationship with this friend where there is an authority structure. And uh, it's a very loose and flexible authority structure in a lot of ways. Um, But one of the things that's the dynamic there is that uh, there is a, and, and this is a really interesting one, because there's a lot of odd things going on in this context. Um, and on the one hand, it's a very empowering environment where I say, like, you know, hey, this is an important thing I would like to do. I would like your permission and support to do this. And they've been very open-handed and saying, yes, we support you in this, go and do it. And that's been great and powerful. And I've been trying to be very deliberate and careful about submitting to that authority. But there's this weird dynamic where they will say that, and then things will happen that undercut that. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is there's a dynamic where when they do something, like if one of us does, one of these sort of subordinates does something wrong, there's a lot of drama. But if one of the executives does something wrong, it's just sort of completely ignored. And it's like, huh. And this is not a healthy dynamic, as I'm sure you would agree. The question is, what? how do we deal with that? And that was actually the question I was grappling with this last week. And 
the, the thing that I realized is there's two bad responses. One is to just shut up and say nothing and just let the uh, unhealthy behavior continue. The other would be to set myself up as an authority and say, you guys are wrong. You need to straighten up. This is unacceptable. What is wrong with you? You must fix it. Mm -hmm. And both of those are extremely common and rarely healthy. And so the question is, what does it mean to find the third way forward? So what it looked like for me was, is I said, okay, help me understand. What is the most important thing I need to do? Is to make sure that our business, I believe the bigger entire business is having the, is that we are living on our values, achieving our impact, and receiving the financial outcomes that, you know, we deserve right. to get that level of impact. Right. And back and forth, yeah, yeah, that's true. It's like, okay, like, well, so what if I said we should, like, stop being a robot company and, you know, become, you know, go, all go back to one office? He goes, well, that'd be really hard. So he said, it would be hard. Like, that's a consideration. And then there's a cost and a process of how to do that in a way that lives out our values. But the criteria or what, what is it, how do we succeed with our values, our impact, and our payoff? And I say, yeah, that's right. That's the distinction. So we have that sense. So I say, okay. So if that's true, then I have a dangerously simple proposal to do that, which is that we stop acting like a founder-led startup and start acting like a real business, and that we essentially fire you from the role of founders and then have you write job descriptions and have an honest discussion about whether you're willing to be rehired into those roles and be accountable to that rather than just, we're the founders, we're the parents, you have to do what we say. Uh -huh. And they were very open to that. Okay. And they were very supportive and, and they admired my courage. And so they didn't fire me, we didn't fire them. Um, and we're still in process of working that out. Okay. But, but the thing that I realized was that the thing that made it work, which was fascinating, only and only sort of is that I was totally submitting to their power and their authority. Is that mm -hmm. even though it was a um, maybe scandalous claim, it wasn't being done in a rebellious way. Mm -hmm. And this idea, I think, just what is meant by speaking the truth in love and um, submitting to the process is like, hey, I, I think what I was trying to do, just reflecting on it, is to say, like, hey, I am willing to submit to the personal risk and psychological cost, and I am inviting you to do the same thing, to submit okay. to this process in particular, to give up your get-out-of-jail-free card you have as founder, right? Because we have values, we have processes, but because they're the founders, if people get up and say, hey, sorry, you know, you, know uh, you don't get to do this, like, you know, and I get to do this. And I think that's what I'm talking about. It's kind of a community where you don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card. So do you have that outside of the work environment? 
sorry, what? Do you have that kind of community outside of the work environment that you're describing? Um, yes. Well, we're a little bit in transition. Our old church, oddly enough, is actually shutting down this week. Uh-huh. Um, and it's really interesting to figure out what happens next. Uh, we are committed to our new church, and I'm trying to find the... Um, and so I've been trying to understand. Actually, you know, it's funny. Uh, I was there uh, like a month ago. Uh, it, it was a hot day, and I was wearing shorts, and I got a little bit of a comment from one of the leaders. And I realized, oh, it is not. It is culturally normative in this church to dress up. Okay. And so I realized, like, okay, my goal is to be you know, God's agent in this church, and therefore I need to confront conform culturally to the things that they expect in order to earn trust and credibility so that they listen to me. Uh And so I've been going through that process of like, okay, how do we tithe? How do we dress? How do we uh, attend events? Um, Because if this is the context in which God has called me to serve, I need to render under Caesar what is Caesar's. I can still Uh think what I think and, and say, like, I'm not sure this is a global truth, but I'm willing to submit to this local this local truth and then right. try to understand what I can do and say. And, you know, when we go there on a Sunday morning and they preach a sermon, I say, okay, God, what is the uh, thing here that... And what is something that you... that What is the thing that I react to that bothers me, and then how do I take the thing that bothers me and process it with you that I see how to, you know, I can still say there's certain things, okay, that was probably not very healthy, but the fact that it bugged me is a sign that I don't have grace for this issue or this person, and how do I keep pressing into that discomfort and that tension in a way that draws an empathy and relational union rather than, uh, you know, logo-hauling myself into the cynical, detached frame of mind that is very easy for me to get into. Yeah. Are you driving right now? You, every two minutes or so, you cut out for about 10 seconds, and I miss half a sentence. Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure what Yeah, I am driving. Yeah, I have an hour-long drive, and it's out of the Bluetooth or the cell coverage. Uh, yeah, okay. But, yeah. That is unfortunate. But maybe yeah. you can uh, be creative in your interpretation and see what you summarize. Right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So, so, so what I'm trying to build that community with this new church, and then secondly, I'm hoping that God will do something with the pause DBJ reflective group, which is continuing on at least for some period of time after the old church dies, uh-huh. and you know may even gain a life of its own. I don't know yet. Okay. So um, it sounds like when you talk about being under authority, you it sounds to me like being in community where you're exposed to different perspectives that you can choose to accommodate or not. Uh, am I misreading? I think, you, I think you totally misread it. Okay. Once I choose to belong to a community, yeah. I I have an obligation. So 
My purpose in joining the community is not because I believe they're doing everything correctly. Sure, right. It is because I believe it is God's context for shaping me into his image. Okay. And therefore, uh, whatever it takes to represent God faithfully within that context is a moral and spiritual obligation. Right. And in, and in particular, the challenge is to incarnate and to connect at a deep, vulnerable, emotional level with this community and not pull apart in a uh, critical, logoholic posture. That is precisely the freedom that I am giving up. Before I join a group, I could do that. But once I commit, you know, even though I will react that way, I have an obligation to work through that, to reconnect emotionally. Yeah. So... A phrase I heard, I think I heard in that was to best represent God in this context. And you and the leadership of the church might disagree at some point on what best represents God in this context. Is that possible? I mean, sure. I mean, first of all, my ideas are both unclear and not entirely correct. And theirs are too. Okay. Uh, but more precisely, the way that I represent, I mean, the um, interesting implication that. Is it? Still there? The Bluetooth yeah, just fell. Okay, right, got it. Right. So the, the point is, yeah, the point is, is that they need to see the love of Christ in me is like the, if we diverge from anything, is because I am 100% committed that the foundation of how I represent Christ in that group is them feeling the love of Christ from me. Right, okay. Right, and that there is this vulnerable, authentic, relational connection. And uh, I can imagine people quibbling about that intellectually. I cannot imagine anyone objecting to that in practice. <laughs> so you're showing them the love of God. That's the thing you're saying. More, more precise. Vulnerably demonstrating Christ-like love to them. Okay. And how do you know when you're doing that and when you versus when you think you're doing that, but you're misleading yourself? Uh, when people trust me. So if if people trust you, that um, is a um, uh, irrefutable or controvertible evidence. <laughs> When people trust me, it means they feel psychologically safe around me. That, I think, is almost a logical tautology. All right. So I'm trying to understand what you mean by Christ-like love. Did the Pharisees experience Christ-like love from Christ as well as the people he he Um, owned? No. He, He drew a line. And he said, I am going to alienate the Pharisees so they kill me. Right? He literally okay. did not want them to ask 
actually trusted he was the Christ. He was trying to offend them uh, and, and and kill them and, and, and have them kill him. So, so he was intentionally provoking them and being non- provoking them. and not loving yes. them in a Christ-like way. He was not I draw a line that's kind of arbitrary, but it's useful between Jesus and Christ. Okay, I I need a refresher in what that kind of line right, but would be, but... like, The human Jesus did many things uh, during his life, including getting angry at Peter and and, and so right. forth, and like uh, and literally like saying he doesn't want to do the will of God. That was a very Jesus thing to do. Okay. Right? Um, but pricing is precisely this thing that he did that was superhuman and yet also uh, only possible because he was he was superhuman and in a way that was sort of not divine. It, it, was, it was this crazy thing, you know, between Gethsemane and the cross. And... This Christ-like love is precisely this laying down one's life on behalf of one's friends. And so in this particular context, what I mean is that I am building a friendship with these people where they trust me because I demonstrate Christ-like love to them. That is the context of being part of a community. That may not scale to every possible context, but that is the context in which I'm defining these yeah. terms. Okay, so for you, the proof uh, that you're extending Christ-like love is the trust that uh, you receive back from the community. Am I back well, with that? No, not quite. It is that when specific okay. individuals within the community at, uh, ex- that um, uh, feel safe enough to share painful and vulnerable truths. That's when they have felt that I, I mean, there's different layers. Like in some ways, if you show up, you know, and the community as a whole sort of creates this generic welcome, okay, you pass the level, you know, level one, you know, cultural, you didn't send up any of the cultural triggers that scare people away. So there's a certain level of trust that comes just by showing up and saying the right words and wearing the right clothes. You know, and there's another level of trust that you get by showing up for men's ministries or small groups or whatever. Um, but, like, the thing that is actually interesting to me is, how, you know, my measure is how do I draw people closer to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and what I now call the way of Christ, uh, more precisely. And for that, uh, people have to actually share their deep truths not just their superficial truths. Does that term make sense to you? Sure, yeah. Deep truth yeah. is Right, and it's a vulnerable truth. Like, most people, if you ask them what they want, they'll give you a very superficial answer because you know, they don't want to embarrass themselves. And also, if people, if you tell someone you do not trust what you want, they will use it to manipulate you. Somebody who's untrustworthy. I, yes. I would. You, I mean, I would and, and the worst thing is someone who appears trustworthy, 
but it's actually untrustworthy. Right. And the converse is also possible for somebody you consider untrustworthy, but who is trustworthy. Yes, and, and there are cultural tropes we use to assess trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, wearing it, like, you know, uh, what was the, uh, Marcus Welby saying, like, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV, and he's giving mm-hmm. medical advice, right? Dude, right. That these cultural tropes work, uh, you know, sometimes too well, or sometimes not well enough. And, mm-hmm. yeah, but, like, the point is, is that, you know, that's not their problem. That is precisely my problem. Is how do these people, uh, you know, how do they give trust, and how do I ensure that I am actually doing the hard work to make myself vulnerable, so that I'm giving them a costly signal that they can trust me. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I, uh, I, I'm having trouble um, connecting this with my. Uh, I mean, trying to um, see this framework that you're describing uh, in the way that the Gospels describe Jesus interacting with others, um, or Paul, or. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I just think I need to reflect on that more. Yeah, there's um, the, um, the paradigmatic passage, maybe we can do this for a study sometime, uh-huh. uh, is the passage of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Okay. Right? And this is a cultural trope that Jesus even called out, I think, Simon the Pharisee for not doing for him. Like, Jesus was, you know, maybe not exactly offended, but he certainly noticed the fact that Simon didn't bring someone to wash, didn't wash his feet or have a servant right. wash his feet when he entered the house. Right. And this yep. was a cultural thing, and this is precisely the, and what's funny is, I talked about the, uh, the way of Christ, that was my mm-hmm. blog post yesterday, and this idea of, you know, you swear in the book of Acts, they talk about, like, the word Christian appears fairly late in the book of Acts. Earlier, they were referred to as followers of the way. Uh-huh. You familiar with that term? Yeah, yeah, it appears in Acts, yeah. And, you know, there was a brief revival in the 70s where people were trying to talk about the way. There was a version of the Bible called that. Um, right. But it didn't really go anywhere. And uh-huh. what was fascinating for me is I've often had this, um, annoyance at the phrase Jesus follower. Uh-huh. Because, you know, the crowds follow Jesus looking for food, and that's a big difference than following him as a disciple. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have a good way to verbally distinguish between the two. Yeah. And then yesterday I realized, like, or maybe the day before I realized, like, oh, what I really care about is following the way of Christ. That's what I actually need. It's not just following Jesus for the bread. Old Christ narrative of, you know, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, of the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but you know, FTWOC is not the world's easiest acronym uh, to right. deal with. 
But I realized, like, ooh, I could just decide I'm going to pronounce F-T-W-O-C as flip-wash. Right. Do the thought C. And that the people who practice this are flip-washers, which is precisely the paradigm that um, I am arguing for. Is where Jesus says the lords of the Gentiles rule over them. Right. Um, um, but I say to you, the greatest among you must be a servant. And I'm not saying that this is the only thing we do or that everything we do is this. I'm saying this is the most Christ like thing we can do is comprehending grappling with this upside-down, inside-out, foot-washing Messiah. And that's what I mean to follow the way of Christ. Interesting. Uh, when you say the most Christ-like thing we can do, what flashes in my mind is maintaining constant communion, interaction with the Father. Um, and yet... I mean, if you take scripture literally, going to the cross was precisely to lose that. As part of death. Sorry? Well, as in that, yes, as he as he died or before he died. And that was, you said he didn't want to do the will of the Father. I, I find, have difficulty with that characterization because that was what he said like not my will but your will right his will was different than the father's will but that was what he wanted was the father's will not his will okay right i mean there's something there where his will right and it was it was this horrible internal fracture and arguably it was tied very much to this idea or at least this upcoming experience of losing that connection with the Father, of feeling forsaken and abandoned, of losing that manifest presence. Yeah, of being under authority, uh, going back to that theme. Right, but like this to me is a fascinating thing uh, that I keep coming back to, is that the road to heaven feels like hell. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, is to me precisely the Christ-like thing, is that the pagans love the sense of being connected to eternity and infinity. They do. Right? They take peyote and pescatil and, you know, engage in all these rituals and whatever to experience this sense of union with the ultimate. That is not particularly Christ-like. Right. Um, and, you know, the infidels, the, 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 the electors, the sinners, they claim at least that they don't. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's the, uh, the antipode of that is addiction, where you try to deaden yourself and decouple and deaden and not experience the world at all. Huh. So that's also, you know, non-Christ-like, is to either, you know, shun the infinite or, if I might say, be addicted to the infinite. And hmm. Christ-like is precisely the sort of Nobia strip, Klein bottle, inversion thing, where we have to go through this cathartic inside-out process of losing the connection to the Father 
in order to achieve a deeper union with him. That to me, it, like you're gaining status with the disciples and then surrendering it. Like that, that, that rhythmic dynamic is precisely what I mean by Christ-like. It is a reciprocal motion, not a linear motion. Yeah. It's a complex exponential. Yeah. So when the uh, leader at your church says uh, it's culturally normative to dress up for church in this church, something close to that, um, you, I mean, you could just say, okay, he said that I need to do it. Uh, You could evaluate that before God and say, is it, representing God better for me to conform or to not conform um, and to be then have yourself deciding that. It sounds like that's the process you went through. Um, rather than no, it's so, not. It is totally okay. not the process I went through. I said, okay, okay, I have chosen to join this community. Therefore, right. my definition is that whatever it takes to be trusted as an insider within this community, I need to surrender so that, because the only thing I care about is manifesting this inside-out Christ. Like, I have already decided that that is what matters. So you've decided that anything they ask you to do, you should do because that doing whatever they ask is what best represents Christ's love in this context? So there's three options. One is to do whatever they ask or even hint at or imply is necessary. Two is to realize I made a horrible mistake and leave the community and just confess that I just screwed this up. And the third is to let them kill me. Those are the three options I have. Oh, okay, I think I walk into different options, so that's uh, that's fine. Um, well, I mean, it's fine, but I think it's, it's important to discuss, right? Because that is literally what it means to join a community for me. Is that either I work my and sometimes it actually, you know, the inside-out thing usually ends up with a death or two along the way. But like, there is no um, like this is what it means to be part of community is to lay down your life for your friends, that I would rather die than uh, walk away from their pain. That is precisely what I think marriage is. That's precisely what I think it means to be Christ. He would rather die than experience the most horrific thing he can imagine than let his friends suffer in their sins. Yeah. So that's interesting. The uh, my headset to back to off. I'm going to switch over to speakerphone here. Uh, okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, can you hear me as well? Is this good enough, or you need a better? This is at least as good as where you were before. Okay. Great. Um. Yeah, so I just had a interesting uh, conversation with my brother-in-law. We've had family visiting for the last week, 
and um, the uh, you know we're we're talking about uh, the role of discordant voices in improving society. How I would describe it, and uh, the uh, the awareness I have at least, or my my perception. Let's say that uh, I can't label it awareness because I'm not sure it's correct, but I can't think of a scientific advance that hasn't come from. Um, I mean, I guess this is uh, maybe by definition questioning the status quo, which is almost always then uh, uh, responded to by attacks and disagreement and uh, even potentially villainization of the person that's questioning the status quo. Uh, I think it's Galileo or Copernicus who's held up as a, you know, an example of the church persecuting that kind of thinking. But uh, my, my brother-in-law and his wife uh, just react very strongly against my questioning of various things in the medical field and my perception that there are advances there that uh so in any case um this question of with within a community is there a role for the person that doesn't simply comply with the general consensus um, but uh, consciously before God um, expresses uh, love through saying uh, this or that um, maybe needs to be rethought. And it seems to me that Jesus was doing this, was expressing love in this way when he questioned the perspective on the Sabbath and a variety of other things. Uh, I think I... Um, uh, I I have difficulty following uh, the idea that Jesus was not loving the Pharisees in the way he interacted with them. Um, I, you know, I'm happy to reflect further on that um, separately oh, yeah. together. So, there, but, so there's two questions. Yeah. Sorry. You still there? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the that's the, you know, I, I, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. I think that was a continuation of the love that he expressed in challenging their thinking throughout. And that uh, I, I, I'm not sure it makes sense to me the way you're seeing it, but I'll let you go ahead and try and help me see, understand it again. So if first, you want. Okay. So first of all, let's, 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 let's draw a line about the communities we belong to, our friends, and the community we are embedded in, the larger society. Well, okay. would you would you put the re, the whole church in the category of friends, or would you say friends within the church? I have no church? idea. Okay. I, I have no idea. But like for like for my purpose here, when I joined yeah. this church in Fremont, that church is the community. Okay, and they have a leadership, and they have values, and they have shared resources in common that bind them together. That is the community. That is the unit of community I'm talking about. Okay. All right. People that I consider friends. That I want them to trust me. That you know we have each other's backs. That is the goal of being in a community. All right. Okay. As opposed to the society as a whole, which is you know a larger thing. Okay. Um, but so what if we, we have people what, what, who are friends and people who are not? 
Well, but you could also at least imagine uh, drawing that line somewhere within the church community where you have. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then there's a question of, sure. Okay. Fine. Right. right? So the yep. first question is how do we treat cells within our community? And my point is, is that, you know, the ones that we consider within our community, we should be treating as friends. All right. All right. Um, and this, the rest we should love as enemies. Yes, actually. Yeah. Yeah. actually. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. That, that's that, that's a relatively easy one. The second question is, do you want to be Loki or do you want to be Christ? Uh huh. Because culturally, there is this role of the Loki, the outsider, the trickster, uh, the mischief maker, whose job is precisely to question and subvert authority. That is a role. And I did a six-volume series with David Huffman on this whole tension between Loki and Christ. So how is this different from the role that Christ had in his interaction with the larger society that the Pharisees were part of? Because, and this is the thing I find curious, well, your brother was very upset at you. Yes. So is the goal to get your brother to kill you, to make him vent all of his frustration and angst upon you, and in that sense, it is a good thing that he's angry with you because that is what Christ is looking for from the Pharisees. So you think Christ um, did things intending to provoke his death, that he was consciously yes. doing that? Okay. Yes, that's why I'm arguing. I'm arguing he's not stupid. <laughs> like right. all the things he did, like, do you not know that they were offended? Does this offend you? Are you surprised right. that this offends you? Like, I mean... Like, either Christ was an idiot, or he deliberately went out of his way to offend the Pharisees. Well, again, I, I, re I, I reject the dichotomy. I don't think he was an idiot. Um, I don't think his goal was to offend the Pharisees, but maybe I need to consider that more. Okay. I think his, his goal was, I think his goal was to present uh God as he is rather than as they considered him and that the offense was a byproduct of his goal, not the goal itself. So I so, you know, I'm yeah. open I, to reaching for that. This is a fundamental disagreement between your theology and mine. Okay. Got it. Good. Yes. And it's more than but in fact I would argue it is a fundamental disagreement about the fundamental nature of God. Because uh -huh. I actually believe that letting the Pharisees kill him was essential to demonstrating the sacrificial nature of God himself, of even God the Father. Right. So I, and that I, this is precisely the thing that it is most violently essential that we demonstrate about the nature of God. So um, I would draw a line between, you were talking about God's will and Jesus' will. Um, to me, it appears that God was intending, uh, was orchestrating things for Christ to be killed, that Jesus was um, demonstrating and seeking to communicate God's love uh, and what it means to love your enemies. 
Um, I don't think he intended to communicate that loving your enemies always means provoking them to kill you. That is an interesting position that I would be curious if you could actually justify that from Scripture, because I, I can think of a great many Scriptures that say literally the exact opposite. Well, can you give me a few? I can start... Blessed uh, are you when men insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Right. Uh, Jesus taught them that the Son of Man uh, must be killed and uh, must be crucified. And when Peter dared suggest otherwise, Jesus called him Satan. Okay, well, let's, let's take these one at a time. So the first one, um, blessed are you when people persecute you or revile you, okay? Um, is that saying that this is we make that a goal for people to persecute and revile us? It doesn't seem it to me saying, that... This is, so it is saying that this is in fact held out as an extraordinarily high value as a great thing that manifests the character of God. Not as some accidental thing that happens. Just like being merciful or being a peacemaker or being meek. Like all these, it is, a, it is a peer with these other positive uh, characteristics. Well, so uh, for, from my perspective, this is describing the world's reaction as we demonstrate these other characteristics. Um, you're you saying. If you start from the assumption, but if you look at that, okay, he's listing a bunch of things that he considers blessed. And one of these things is not like the other for some reason. Is that what your argument is? Um, well, the attitudes, right? The whole list of the attitudes. Yeah. And this is the last one. Okay. So you're, what, what I think you're saying is that uh, just like uh, we should seek to be meek, the meek will inherit the earth or pure of heart, that we should so but those are qualities of us um but you're going beyond qualities of us to say we should seek to provoke negative reactions from other people not as a byproduct but as a specific goal right so so the word provoke is a bit stronger than i would use but it's not incorrect what is there a word that comes better to mind, or it just feels stronger than you want us? Here's the question: Why yeah. is, is, is the, the the fundamental thing that I am arguing is that the sacrificial nature of God is intrinsic rather than accidental? Uh, okay. so and that's the only way the world is redeemed. The fact, uh, uh, either uh, repeat that again. Let me try and internalize it, or let me try the sacrificial nature of God is intrinsic. Uh, okay, complete the, the thought because I think I only got that much. Sure. That the sacrificial nature of God and of Christ is intrinsic and intentional rather than accidental or peripheral. Well, sacrificial in the sense of um, doing things that are costly to me or sacrificial in the sense of 
uh, I don't know what word you want to use instead of provoke, but of provoking the reaction. So, right. I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the way I'm looking at it, provoke, like, there's a, the, the word provocation is, is misleading. Okay. Um, even though it's not incorrect, right? It's that there's a sense in which the nature of God is provocative. Right? Because this world is evil. But the way yeah. that we defeat evil is by provoking it to kill us. And so there is a that. phase of demonstrating virtue uh, where people love you because you say all the nice things. And then right. there's a phase where they discover, because they, they, they uh, this is precisely the relationship between ego and virtue. Right? Um. When our ego is like when we see Jesus, when the disciples see Jesus pointing out the things that they see are evil in the world, they love it. It makes them happy. Okay. That he's, you know, right? But then when they, he starts doing things that make them feel threatened in some right. fashion, like offending the Pharisees, like saying he's going to be crucified, right. like, you know, like this, Wait, then they get very going. uncomfortable and they react against it. And there are things that Jesus knows will be disturbing to them. And the point is, is that, like, this is a complex exponential. When you view it from above, it's all just part of the same circle. It's not like, oh, this is the nice stuff and this is the provocative stuff. It's all the same uh, progression. And the one has to lead inevitably to the other. It's not like it's a different thing. They are you know, uh, intrinsic parts of the same whole. And yes, the world is corrupt. Yes, we are corrupt. And when we okay. encounter Christ, you know, there'll be parts that we like and parts that we hate. Right. And that is what it means to encounter Christ. And the thing that makes it Christ rather than Loki or a tyrant is when push comes to shove, we internalize the sin and allow others to judge us rather than externalizing the sin by judging them. Um, so uh, you said uh, Loki or the, I've forgotten the authority figure. The tyrant. The tyrant, okay. Um, Jesus wasn't either of those, but what's yeah. the third option there? Uh, we could say it's Loki Christ or the tyrant. It's evil okay. by letting it destroy him. Okay, right. So, um, and, and the real question is this, I think, and let's get back to our logoholism. Is your ego your greatest ally or your worst enemy? The answer is yes, right? <laughs> um, I actually don't think it's actually an ally. Um, it is a good. Um, it is it is precisely um, Gollum. Yeah. So it I is define. The, it is, it is, remember Gollum in the Lord of the Rings? 
Yeah, yeah. Can you define ego as you're um, using it in this context? Sure. My ego is my current sense of self that I use as a reference point for making decisions and judging right and wrong. All right. So if we just get rid of ego and don't do any of that judging right and wrong ourselves um, and just let the uh, the community that we're part of dictate that, is that the solution that you're proposing? No, I said it is precisely Gollum. Do you remember Gollum from The Lord of the Rings? My precious. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, yeah, but so uh, there's a scene where Bilbo says, oh, it's a pity we didn't kill him. Like, yes, couldn't we just kill Gollum? It's like, no. Gollum is vital, but uh-huh. he is not an ally. That is the thing that you have to learn about. Like, if, if it was not for Gollum, Bilbo would never have made it to, to Mordor. Right. To defer it for destroying the Ring of Power. Yep. We need Gollum to lead us to the place where sin has its home. Uh-huh. Uh, but never forget, but it is dangerous to forget the fact that he is a unreliable, deceptive enemy. In fact, we are counting on fact. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right? And that is the relationship we have with our ego. Like, there is something nice and good about it, but there's also something horribly, dangerously evil, and you are a, you are, it is essential that we follow it, and you are a fool to trust it. Uh-huh. And perversely, the worse our ego, the greater the depths of the enemy we have the opportunity to destroy. I have a whole series which is about this quest where I discover my ego and I realize that like the whole point of this quest is to destroy my ego and then I can't. Uh, is that I go to various places and various experiences, and I can't find anyone to destroy it. But what uh-huh. I can find is a law to mangle it. Uh-huh. And when the, my ego is mangled, it becomes the key to opening the gates of hell and finding out what it is that... And so ruined ego is the key. And the bigger your ego, the greater the ruin the more powerful door it can unlock. So do you apply that uh, sequence to Christ? Do you see that unfolding in him? Yeah, to me that is in some sense Gethsemane. He had to engage with the world so deeply and become so fully human that he had experienced this agony of Gethsemane and say, like, my will, my ego doesn't want to do this. Right. Okay. And if he had not had an ego, if he had just, you know, faced this when he was a baby or whatever, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. Right. He had to gain an ego so he could experience what it felt like to have a will that did not naturally align with his father's. Okay. And then surrender it. Yeah. So, so, a will, uh, so he had a will above a will. I mean, there's a, a level of will that didn't want to, but the higher will was to surrender and to follow the Father's I mean, will. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I don't know if it's useful to call that a will, but there was something. 
Right. I don't know what else you'd call it, but yeah. Spirit is actually not a bad term. So, so the spirit can rule over the will. In that yeah, I mean, there's a sense that you mean, in, in Eastern philosophy, they talk about the true self rather than the illusory self. Then the um, self, I catch the second term. The true self versus the false self. False, okay. And yeah. so they did ego, this perspective that we are a thing distinct from the rest of the universe. Uh-huh. is the false self. So, like, you know, they are evil, I am not evil, I am not them. They would say that that's uh-huh. all the false selves. And yeah, they, okay. you know, the Indian version of this is that all is Brahma, all is God, all is the divine, and any belief that we are distinct from that is an illusion. Right. And that um, unself is not yeah, that that is the the state of being, and it is precisely this war between the ego and the true self that is um, the challenge. Uh-huh. And this is the, and in particular, going back to vocaholism of logic and words. The ego, the left brain, you know, requires logic and words to operate. Uh-huh. And the true self is precisely going, is subverting that into a place of non-duality, where me and you and good and evil lose their power. That is the thing that Kierkegaard talks about as what Abraham had to do with Isaac. And what Jesus had to do with Gethsemane was to release our ability to make those distinctions, which, which even though it is precisely those distinctions that allow us to act skillfully in this world, like that is literally the thing that has to die for us to reach this deeper level of communion with Christ uh-huh. and with God. And it is precisely our existing way of relating to God that, like with the Pharisees, becomes the enemy of Christ and must die in order for Christ to live. Or else it will kill Christ so it can live. So should your goal with your church community be to be killed by them? The goal is to birth Christ in them and either woo them by um, modeling for them. So the best case scenario is that I kill myself in front of them. I, literally, I kill myself before them. They, you like kill my yourself? Body, they see me dying to the things that I hold, and that inspires them to do the same. That is the best case scenario. Right? Peter didn't have to kill Jesus. He saw Jesus killed. He saw Jesus didn't kill himself. So you're saying he that Jesus killed himself in a sense that he provoked, he intentionally, consciously right. provoked yeah, the yeah. Pharisees. Yeah, he no put way. himself in a position where he died. Right? And I think right. about this a lot. It's like, this is what I had to go through when it worked. was like, okay, how do I put myself where I am offered up like a sacrificial lamb and where they see that the thing that I 
strikes me there's a sense of timing, at least for Jesus. My time has not yet come. So he, you know, moved confidently through a variety of situations. And then he had a clear sense from God that his time had come, that this was the hour and that he uh, was not going to enjoy it. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame and uh, embraced the Father's will over his own will, uh, which seems to me like an act of will, but we're calling it spirit, a choice of the spirit. Yeah, will is dangerous because willpower is usually in the service of ego, the way the term is commonly used. Yeah, okay. Right, and this is precisely the cut point in complex analysis, right? When you cycle around to two pi, right, is you are going around and then you end up back at the same place, but different. Uh-huh. And that is the thing that, like, to be Christ is precisely to go full circle. Right. And you end up back there the same, but different. And so, there is a death, a dying, a cutting, a, right. a subversion of the narrative that is essential to going full circle. Yeah. So early in, our yeah. early in our conversation, you refer, referenced the season uh, year and a half ago when I was focused on uh, there was tension in the home and I was being uh, excluded from pretty much all interaction. And simultaneously, yeah. I was trying to uh, hear from God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit what was going on and how I should respond and to become more conscious of his guidance than my own reasoning and understanding, which I um, tend to rely on, even though I memorized the admonition not to. Um, But uh, that's the ingrained pattern from my own, uh, you know, uh, I don't know that I'd uh, yet identify with the logoholism as my primary uh, escape because I, contrary to what your friend says, that's what works for him or that's how he, he that he can talk his way out of situations. I don't find that I, I talk my way out of situations, but I do rationalize and, and rely on my reason. Right. So um, to be fair, but, the, the more general statement of, okay, but sorry, keep going. Yeah, but the uh, so that uh, led in part to a hunger for mutual submission, for uh, clarifying a desire for communication, the readiness, uh, recognition of living out what I hear you describing. It may not be what you intend with the church. That uh, whatever uh, seems it seems like they want, I would try and conform to. Um, but that in itself seemed to be part of the problem here is that I have acted like um, not an independent person, but just a mirror of whatever I think others want. And I'm often wrong about what they want um, because of poor communication of assumptions and uh, effort, a lack of effort to clarify. Um, and so we've moved through that now to a place where uh Jackie and I are finding uh I think we're entering a healthier season of communication where 
we still feel attacked when each other raises a concern, but we're learning to say, hey, I'm feeling attacked by the way you said that. Can we reframe that? And so we had a awkward discussion yesterday morning that led to a much more constructive conversation in the afternoon. Um, and uh, so I, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm maybe misunderstanding your um, response to the the in the culture of our church we dress up uh, comment. It seems to me, in my 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 reflection and my my projection of myself on you, that you took that and before God said, "Huh, yeah, I think this is something that I should do." But I would imagine there might be other things that they would say, this is part of the culture of the church where you'd say, okay, I, I maybe I'll go along with that, but I don't think that's healthy and I will work in these ways to change it. Or uh, I don't think I can do that at this stage, but I will try and work with the leadership in a way that we can come to some agreement on things as opposed to just blindly saying, okay, uh, the church says that's the thing to do, so I'm going to comply to keep the peace and to be part of the group. Okay, okay, okay. This, 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 is, this is the phrase that you are completely missing. You yeah, say comply okay. to keep the peace. No, my sole purpose is to yeah. manifest Christ within this community, full stop. And if you don't know who Christ is, then those words are meaningless to you. If you know Christ, then that is the only thing that matters. And if you don't know Christ, that's also the only thing that matters. Like, there's a way of engaging with community post-Christ that is literally and apparently inconceivable to you. Like, that category does not seem to exist in your logos. Okay, so did uh, the disciples relate to Christ in the way that you're describing, or was it only after the resurrection? That I think it was only after the resurrection that they knew who Christ was. Other than that, he was just Jesus who conformed awkwardly to their stereotypes of a Jewish rabbi. Okay, so then when when Peter drew back from with the because it came from James, um, and then Peter corrected him, how does this relate to Peter, I mean, should Paul not have corrected Peter, or should Peter have not responded to the community? You're, you're missing my point. I don't know if it's on purpose or by accident. Well, it's, uh, I'm trying to... I was talking want... about how did you ask, did, did, I'm not saying that Peter perfectly represented Christ after the resurrection. I'm saying before he encountered Christ, he had no clue what that even meant. Okay. He did right. not know who Christ was. And the question is, I think the question on the table is, do you actually know who Christ is? Do you actually know what Christ means? Have you encountered him in the cross and his resurrection? And if you know that, we can have one conversation. If you don't, we should have a different conversation. And I think I will actually leave it there. Because uh, yeah, I don't want you to give me a flip and answer. I want you to actually think about it and tell me which you think it is. And then we can have that as a point of our next conversation. Because I'm actually home now and I need to... Oh, okay, okay. Move on. Yeah, well, it, it right. sounds like you, you don't think I have uh, is what I'm left with, and that's fine if that's what you're meaning to communicate. 
I mean, every time I try and bring it up, you seem to not hear me. So that is my inference. I'm willing to say that there's something I'm missing. And I'm curious, but, you know, upon reflection, what, which one you actually think it is, because I honestly don't know. Right. Okay. All right. Well, have a good right. day with your family, and we'll talk later. Bless you. Bye-bye.